0: We are in the book of 2 Peter, so if you can find 2 Peter chapter 1, I'll give you a moment to find that place and then we'll have a word of prayer and jump into this for today. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your watch, care and protection during this past week. Thank you now, Lord, that you have given us sufficient health and strength to be out in the house of the Lord this morning and here for the, uh, for the ABF time. We pray that you'll bless all the classes today, Lord. Bless Brother Ron Glass and Brother Patrick Robbins as they have the other two ABF classes. Bless here in our room, Lord. I pray that uh, each person in any of these classes today, whether the adult ones or the younger ones, uh, give the teachers wisdom. I pray that there'll be something here for each of us today that our hearts will be in tune, will be looking, will be uh, wanting, Lord, to sense those things that you may particularly uh, use by your Holy Spirit to encourage guide or direct us here in this day, because we want to say, to the Lord, that we understand we, we have needs, many times deep needs, and uh, you know what those are. So we've come here today to put ourselves in a place where you may minister to us, as well as that we may give and be an encouragement to others. And so we ask for your blessing now on this time, as well as on the service to follow, for I pray these things now in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, we've been trying to keep this study sort of analogous, and what I mean by that, I wanted to start by saying this again this morning, since this is only the second lesson now in the Second Peter series. Obviously, there's a relationship between First and Second Peter, just as there was a relationship between First and Second Timothy. Same author, same audience. Some times gone by, circumstances are different. So, in the book of First Peter. We saw the circumstances of suffering, and so we use the theme of sufficiency in suffering, making the observation or the statement that Christ is our sufficiency in suffering. won't take you back over that ground. Um, but now in the book of Second Peter, oh, let's say three years. Let's just use a round number. Have transpired. And so circumstances are different now. And Peter is writing with a concern about false teachers, and that's very obvious as you read through the book. and, By the way, I'm not gonna stand up here and say read through the book every week or whatever. I mean, some teachers do that and that's not a bad thing to do, but I really do think it would be helpful for you if you do read it through at least once. So you have some appreciation of what all is in the book and where this is headed as we kind of move forward with things, but we're talking now about sufficiency for faith because Whether you're thinking about faith in terms of your personal faith in Christ, that's the subjective sense in which we use faith, or you're thinking of the objective sense, you're thinking of uh, the body of revealed truth that we have revealed to us in the Bible. When that's under attack, as in false teachers, where do we find our sufficiency? Do we have something to fall back on? Are there answers for these things? Is there encouragement and strength for us? And the answer to that is yes. Um, God is our sufficiency in faith, just as is God is our sufficiency in suffering. But to make the particular application that we want to make now in the book of 2 Peter, the Bible is sufficient for faith. And you see this very strongly coming out when we look at the first lesson, and you're there in those opening verses. And I pointed out to you some differences between what Peter says in 1 Peter 1 in the introduction and what he says in 2 Peter, because you'll notice here he mentions to those who have obtained a faith, verse number two, of equal standing with ours. And that's a really important point for us. I wanna just go back and say a quick word about this because Peter wanted the people that he was writing to to know, listen, there is absolutely nothing second class about your faith. Your faith has the same exact value. You believe the same exact things. It does for you in terms of what God does when we exercise faith in his son and we are saved, and then as we go on to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is the very same thing. We don't have the availability as Peter did. He's going to talk later in this chapter about being eyewitnesses of these things, and and we don't have that availability today. Jesus hasn't walked the earth for, oh, again to pull round numbers, two thousand years. But there's still absolutely nothing that diminishes the validity value of the faith that we have so this is a really important theme and a really important point for us in the day in which we live so let's read our verses for this morning and then we'll jump in um, i'm starting now this morning at verse number five for this very reason make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with started this off, we talked about getting your faith. If the subject is going to be faith, then how is it exactly that you and I come to have faith? And a key point to make there is it certainly has nothing to do with man's wisdom or work. We haven't, as Peter says, followed cunningly devised fables. Instead, he says in verse number one, we have obtained, that is to say, this faith has been granted to us by God. And our faith, then, is in the Lord Jesus Christ, as revealed in His Word. All right, that's taken place. Everybody here today who is saved, who is a child of God, you've had this experience, and the question becomes, so what now? I mean, is that all there is to Christianity? I mean, there's this lead-up to it. When you, I guess when you look back and you think about it this way, there's this lead-up in the sense that, well, over, for a lot of us, over a period of some time, There was this conviction, this building of an understanding that we were lost, that we were undone, that we were sinners, that we were in need of a Savior. And ultimately, when God was ready to bring that work to fruition, we come to faith in Jesus as our personal Savior. Now what? Well, think about one of the expressions or illustrations, if you will, it's actually both, that the Bible uses to describe what I've just talked about, the salvation experience. He says in verse number four, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, it's worded slightly differently here, but you should not get the impression from this that Peter is at all suggesting that when we're saved, we sort of are on a pathway like the Mormons to becoming God. That isn't what he's saying here. He's talking about what he's been talking about all along. So if we go back to the first book, how did he phrase it there? Verse number 23 of chapter one, he says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. So he talks about being born again. In the very next chapter, verse two, like newborn infants, Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. So, Peter's talking about being born again. All right, look, when you're born, you're never going to be any more of a living being than you are at that point. I hope I, heard, I, hope I phrased that accurately enough from a scientific standpoint. You're a fully living being at that point, correct? But will you be the same in six months as the day you were born? Will you be the same in six years as the day you were born? No, because if you are, there's a bad problem, right? And we expect that, having come into this world and we have life, that it begins a process by which we grow and mature. So this becomes a very apt for, uh, metaphor or illustration for us, spiritually speaking, and points to the fact that here's a big mistake a lot of people make, and I, I don't know, maybe we just haven't done adequate preaching. I, I, I hope that hasn't been the case, but the idea that the Christian life is just a static experience, I think sometimes that's what we want to believe because that's what's easy and we're lazy. Okay, I'm saved now, nothing more to do. We just sort of muddle through here now in, in terms of, while we're still in this world, and eventually we'll go to heaven. That, that's kind of a pretty weak concept, really, of what's going on. No, that being born again is just the beginning, and the Christian life is a dynamic life. Just as, as it is, we grow and we mature. So the Christian life isn't a static experience. It's all about growth, and Peter gives this away. He's already said it in a number of other places. I just read you one, 1 Peter 2.2 as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you might grow thereby. All the way at the end of this letter, he says, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's 2 Peter 3.18. But look in our text, because there are two words that give this away to us right away. So in verse number five, he says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement. And I, I mentioned to you here, Two words that start with A, the way the King James renders this, makes it really easy to fasten onto. Supplement that we have here is translated add in the King James Version. Then we get to verse number 8, and he says this. He says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing. So when you put these two concepts together of adding and abounding, it's obvious that there's a whole lot that God wants to be going on in, in our lives. There's a whole lot he's doing in our lives. And if we aren't understanding of that, if we aren't looking for that and yielding to that process, you know, the Lord is gonna have to get our attention in some way because that's definitely what he intends. So I wanna talk about three thoughts as we, as we move through this today. The process of, I'll, I'll sort of just use this expression for growing in grace the process of becoming more like Jesus, that's a good, I think, practical way to put it that we can all fasten onto. What is God really doing? He's changing us because he wants to conform us to what? The image of his son. All right, so we are being changed, we are growing. God wants to conform us to the image of his son. So the process of becoming more like Jesus. And so what we're gonna notice this morning, This just happened to work out to use P's for this, but um, there's going to be a prerequisite to that process. There's going to be a picture of it, and then there's going to be a promise concerning it. So, let's dive in. What prerequisite are we talking about? He says in verse number five, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. So, I'll make an opening statement. Here's the prerequisite, right here, right up front, so that we see it, and then you'll know the other points that I'm trying to show you from the text to to demonstrate. A fully outfitted faith requires commitment. It isn't just going to happen, folks. In other words, what we're seeing now is, is that having been saved, and no one here this morning questions the fact that that work is, entirely of God. We don't contribute to that. This is what God has done sovereignly in our lives, that we have come to a knowledge of His Son, through salvation, through a knowledge of His Son. What happens now, though, requires our cooperation with what God wants to do. So if you think about the way our development has been through life, especially when you're younger. I mean, you don't really know too much about this. All you really know when you're really young is you're hungry, (laughs) you know, and uh, so you eat and have some awareness of the fact that you're growing. But as you get a little bit older, you realize, well, it's more than just eating. There's, There's a process to this. There's the physical, but I go to school. There's the intellectual. There's all this stuff that goes into making me a well rounded, fully outfitted human being. And guess what, folks, the process really shouldn't ever stop even just looking at it from a human standpoint, because there's always more and there are always new things to challenge and stimulate yourself with. I, I really don't want you involved in this, but it just pops into my mind to say this, I think it's a pitfall really of retirement for a lot of people. They don't realize they just kind of think, okay, I, I, I'm, I'm done with what I did for 30 or 40 years, I'm done with working so now what do you do just uh you know sit in a chair for the whole day or you know you have something to kind of keep yourself busy So yeah I, I keep busy with paying bills and going to the doctor and keeping the government off my back well those three things but there really is more folks and so to be a fully outfitted christian it requires commitment and there are two words that peter uses that just are wonderfully suited to make this point. First of all, what we have translated here to supplement. So look at this, it says, for this very reason make every effort. By the way, if you're asking yourself, what is the expression for this very reason referring back to, it's referring back to what's in verses three and four, that he has called us by his own glory and excellence, the end of verse three, and he's given to us these great and precious promises by which to just use the normal expression, we've been born again. So in broad terms, salvation. So since we've been saved, for this very reason, now make every effort, he says, to supplement your faith with virtue. So, will talk first of all about supplement. We've seen this word before, and where we've seen this word before, and I took a little bit of time, so those of you that were in the class might remember this, don't know that I expect you to remember everything like this, but let me say it again for folks that weren't in the class. Look at 1 Peter 4.11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength which God supplies. And I'm interested in the word supplies. And you'll notice that I gave you a transliteration of what this word is, epichoregeo. So I want to show you how you know more about this word than you think you know. For the moment, don't think about the first three letters. Because that's a preposition, and it just intensifies the concept of the word, so that we have not just the idea of to supply, or to supplement, but to fully supplement. But look at the rest of it. Choreo. Choreo. You know anything like that in English? Chore. Choreography. Choreographer. Or, if we take the shortened form of the word, instead of the verb, we'd have chorus. And We know all about that, right? Or at least we know something about it. I mean, lots of us are not trained musicians, but we we like to sing, and we know about the songs, and we know about choruses, and that type of thing. Well, here's the concept. So, in the ancient world, in Greek culture, this sounds kind of modern, doesn't it? um, not much really changes, I, I guess, in a lot of ways, but we're sort of used to this concept, the state provides certain things. We won't get into a discussion of whether or all that's good or bad, but the state provides certain things. In those days, the state provided for a choir. So, now you have a choir. That was a, a cultural thing, so to speak, in a community. But there's more, right? Because now you have to outfit. This choir, they require music. I don't know about in that day, but in some churches they might require robes. Okay, Um, I think this is done in this church. You might be provided a copy of the music, right? Um, You might be provided with a recording of the song. So, or and maybe you would be recording specific. uh, sorry, you would be provided specifically with a recording of your part, or you might just be provided with a recording of the song in general. These things would be to fully outfit you so that when it came time for the performance, you would do a good or an adequate job. That's this word. And the person or persons who did that, let's just limit it to one person, was basically someone who came along and made those provisions. He was a benefactor. He was someone who took care of all of those needs. Um, (laughs) It's an an illustration that I have, sort of not the best memories, but you think about, okay, what do foundations, some foundations in our day help do that kind of thing? I remember years ago, and this is what I have an interesting memory of it. um, We had a Christian school ministry, and so I heard about the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation I don't know what they call it now because Melinda, I don't, you know. Anyway, you know what I'm talking about. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And I guess, I I don't want to say I was naive, because I didn't really expect anything to come of it. But I, we wrote them a letter. Because they made all this big hoopla about how they did this, 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 and this. Well, we're a school. Wonder if they would do anything for us, help us with computers or something like that. Well, I got one of these politically worded things back. They aren't going to help a a Christian school kind of a thing like that. That's not really what they exist for, but they have kind of political ways they tell you that so they don't come right out and really tell you that. But that would be an illustration of this kind of thing. Um, Having enjoyed hunting for a lot of years, and I used this illustration last time we talked about this, I think of Cabela's because their slogan is the world's foremost outfitter. And I have the thought of saying, you know, if you're going on a a hunting trip, or you're just going hunting, if you can't find it at Cabela's, the chances are you don't need it. And uh, I remember, was it my 50th birthday or when I'd been there 20 years, I don't remember, but they gave me a gift certificate for, let's just say it was over $500 to to Cabela's. And uh, I had fun with that. I really did it enabled me to get a few things that had a little higher price tag that that I really wanted to have. So the point that I'm working towards, though, is somebody was generous enough to do that for me, right, so that I could go to Cabela's, somebody would be generous enough to endow the choir to buy the music to buy the robes, to furnish the the recordings. So it speaks to generosity, it's somebody who's willing to be supportive of something, all right, that's a lot to make that point, but I wanted you to be able to grasp it. That's epikorigeo. Then he says, giving all diligence. Now, what we have for translation here is make every effort. Now, yes, I kind of wish that the versions would decide and, and, and do it all the same way sometimes in this, where they occur. Because this, this expression actually occurs three times in this chapter. As in verse five, it's translated, make every effort. Make every effort to do this. So not only be generous in your commitment, but then put every effort into it. See why I say commitment is really the prerequisite to this? So then we get down to verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. Same word, so they translate it diligent there. And then you get down to verse 15, and I will make every effort, so they translate it effort again. So whether you say effort or diligence, um, the King James says the same thing. The King James translates it uh, diligence twice in verse 5 and verse 10, and then says, I will endeavor in verse 15. So you might not pick up on this, but that's, that's this word. So again, put the two ideas together. A generous endowment is someone who's kind of on board. You, you, know, you wouldn't do this if you didn't really believe in the choir. And someone who gives it all diligence, not just a little, but all, puts all the effort into it. This is someone who has made a commitment, and that's exactly what's going on here. But, before we leave this, let's just sort of be devotional a minute and also honest. Really, this drives at the very problem that we experience in this whole idea. Because when you start talking about all diligence, somebody immediately says, man, that sounds a little bit too much like work. It sort of does, doesn't it? But that's the whole point, see? It takes some effort. And I don't mean to reduce this to pure human terms, but this is kind of how we're looking at it at this point. I'll say it again. No one's taking anything away from the fact that salvation is a completely divine work. It's a work of God. He does this for us. But how are you going to prosper as a Christian? How are you going to do in your Christian life and if you don't have a commitment, if you aren't willing to be generous in that commitment and put some effort into that commitment, well, you might, I mean, you're not going not to not be a Christian any longer, but you just won't be the thriving, robust Christian that God really intends for you to be. So Peter's describing a robust commitment. That's the problem because he says this. If you don't have these things, look at the end of verse um, uh, eight. Get to verse eight. For if these qualities or these things are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective, which is the word idle. It's literally idle. All right, or unfruitful. And that's not a bad description of the way a lot of people are. They're just content to be saved. And they don't put a lot of effort into the, well, all right, let's be really practical. What kind of effort are we talking about? Well, let's be basic. Do you read your Bible every day? I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad. But I would like to challenge us all here today. Do, do you read your Bible every day? Probably most of us in here, unless we're not feeling well, don't think about going through a day without taking our meals. I and mean, that's the highlight of the day, right? Well. Do we read our Bible every day? Do We pray? Do we do what do we being a pastor for years and years, you you might expect me to say something like this, but you know, there's a practical way of putting this, but it's the truth. You know, church is something you get out of it what you put into it. I mean, the church can provide all kinds of things for you. And it should But if you don't get involved and take advantage of those things, they're they're going to be ineffective in your life. That's not to say that you are involved in everything the church offers, because you aren't gifted for that and you aren't interested in that. But the church provides enough activities, and if you just kind of say, well, you know, I I come on Sunday, that's all they should expect. Well, I always looked at it that I was glad. If that's all people were going to give me, I'd take it and be glad. But I wouldn't back from challenging them There's a lot more. So let's remember this. Let's look at a picture of it now. And uh, Peter is going to talk about seven items or ingredients that are involved in having a fully outfitted faith. Just be glad you got off the hook with seven. I could go in Cabela's and come out with a lot more than seven things, just saying. All right? Even though I probably wouldn't use them now. I'd still probably interested, you know, but anyway, the process of growing. Here's the thing before we start talking about these, and we don't have time to say a lot about each one, I got to get you to see a point and try to remember it. So that if you decide to come back and spend a little more time with this later, what I want you to do is think of it this way, please don't think that you just have a list of seven things here, and they're all totally unrelated, he just sort of threw together a list of seven items that If you read through the Bible, you can come up with the same list of seven things. And uh, so he just threw those things out there. Just know, folks, there's really a relationship between these things. They all kind of fit together. They all sort of are part of this well-rounded idea of a thriving Christian with a robust commitment. They're all going to be there. And uh, so let's take a moment to look. So he says... In your faith, add to your faith, provide generously in your faith for the following seven things. And he starts off with this list, virtue. And a question I have is, does that surprise you? I mean, maybe you didn't think about it all that much for maybe give you some background of the the question. How often do you come across the word virtue in the Bible? Not that much, really. I mean, Paul has it when he talks in Philippians chapter four about if anything have any virtue. But typically, in other words, what I really wanna say is this is a secular word. Not that you can't use it in a religious context, you can. But this tends to be a more secular word. And when the Bible starts talking about these things, by the way, it says he's called you to this. So see this before we see the other. Look back up there in verse number three. It says, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And there's that word again, that virtue word. When the Bible really wants to talk about these things, it tends maybe to use a more typical expression, and Peter actually does it himself. Back in 1 Peter 1, verse 15, he says, but as he who called you, there's the idea of calling coming in again. As he who has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all your conduct. So why does he choose to say something different here? Why does he choose to use the word virtue? And what does the word virtue mean? It means moral power or moral excellence, and our version just uses the one word, excellence. When you think about what Christ is like, he tells us this at the end of verse number three. He's called us to his own glory, so Christ is glorious. What is his character like? His character reflects his moral power and excellence. This is very useful against the backdrop. This, I think, is why Peter is led to use this word. Against the backdrop of these false teachers who promoted a loose lifestyle. Chapter 2, verse 10. This is why I'm saying I think it'd be good to read through the book at least one time, but you get a sense of this. Chapter two, verse 10, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. These people who promoted this knowledge as a way of sort of being liberated from certain things. And I think it's Jude that talks about this. It's the idea of turning the grace of God into lasciviousness, when in fact the grace of God is not that way at all, but as Paul says, The grace of God teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. The grace of God is going to teach us to reflect the character of the one who called us. And his character is one of glory and moral excellence. So he talks about that first of all, and and I wanna call that the quality or qualities that are involved in this process. What process am I talking about? Becoming more like Jesus, growing. Peter also used it back in 1 Peter 2.9, that verse that I have actually up on the, the page, or the, the, the slide there and on your notes. Um, so he, it's not like he's afraid to talk about this concept. He says, uh, i got to find where verse 9. Okay, there we go. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own or for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies, the moral excellencies of him. What? He called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So first and foremost, if we're not any different than the people around us, if we say we're Christians, but there's been no lifestyle change, there's been no change to our conduct if we're still trafficking in all of these worldly lusts and pleasures from which this says we are supposed to have been delivered, then we're not growing and we're not reflecting his, his, his character. We're certainly not a good testimony, so there's more though. Don't have time to park, it would be nice, but second, knowledge. He says also provide, generously provide in your faith, virtue, but to virtue, he says, or along with virtue, knowledge. What what, what are you talking about here, knowledge? Well, I'm going to call this the key to the process for the simple reason, how do we think we're going to be more like Jesus if we fail to grow in our knowledge of Him? I'm just trying to be very practical. Paul said his his aspiration in life was that I may know Him. Philippians 3.10. At the end of the book, Peter says, but grow in grace and in the knowledge. Well, I'm preaching the choir now because you're here for Sunday school. That's that's why you came. Because you really have a desire to learn more about the Lord and about his word. That's a key to things. That's the key. You have to, as we as we know more about him, his spirit is able to work in our lives to make us say, okay, he's like this, I'm not so much like this, this is where I need to get to, I need to be more like him in this respect. So that's, see what I told you, I really want to see, have you see these things fitting together. Thirdly, what does he say next in this ingredients list? And with knowledge, self-control. I call this the discipline that's needed for the process. Again, this is a shot fired across the bow of these false teachers, because they certainly didn't evidence a great deal of self-control. They were indulgent. But what you and I are going to find out is is if you want to have a commitment, especially in spiritual matters, it requires discipline, self-control, because it's not the way of the flesh. So. If you're gonna read your Bible, doesn't that take some discipline? If you're gonna pray, doesn't that take some discipline? Sure, especially if you're gonna make a time for it and be committed to it, especially if you decide you're gonna get up a little earlier in order to do that. So you have to kind of make a commitment to that and it requires some discipline. So this isn't necessarily just a cakewalk. It's not just something that just falls in our lap It's a process. It requires diligence, generosity, commitment, effort, all of which are reasons why we need to be thinking about self-control, which by the way, we don't come by naturally. And if you were to look at Galatians 5.23, you would find that that, this particular word translated self-control is a fruit of the spirit. If you're used to using the King James, it's translated temperance. But temperance is, doesn't serve us quite as well today, because we tend to think of temperance more in, an, in a very specific application of alcohol or something like that. But this is more broad. All right, we've got to keep moving. Steadfastness. Because you'll be tempted to quit, you'll make this commitment. And then you'll be tested in this commitment. And it'll be very easy to want to be tempted to quit. And this word here, steadfastness, is patience. But again, patience is like temperance. It's a little bit too restrictive. We tend to think about patience with people. Patience is more about patience with things. But it's endurance is really the concept. It's translated here, steadfastness. That's the determination that we need for the process. Fifth, godliness is the attitude that we need during the process because When the Lord is working in our lives to be more like Him, sometimes we talk about that as being convicted. That ever happened to you? (laughs) And sometimes when we're convicted, we tend to be a little ornery. And when we're a little ornery, we gotta remember that okay, in the process, There'll be those times when we want to react in a way that's not very godly. So, this is the attitude that's needed during the process. Sixth, brotherly kindness, because if you are a little ornery and lash out towards others, which we do sometimes, unfortunately, this is the response that's needed to others during the process. And seventh, agape love is the motivation that's needed during the process. And I make the point here, if faith is the foundation we could have used this illustration back a while ago. God has provided our faith, that like a foundation, and you wouldn't stop there, right? You realize you have to build, you have to grow. So if faith is the foundation, love is the crown, and as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, now abideth faith, hope, love, charity, but the greatest of these is love. All right, there's a whole lot you could say about these, and we just have to move on. There's a promise. And like a lot of promises, sometimes it approaches it from the negative perspective, as well as the balance point, the positive part. What can you count on from a negative standpoint? Well, you can count on this, the absence of these things that he's just talked about. The absence of the things in the picture that make us more like Christ, those seven ingredients, the absence of those things will reflect, or will result, as it says right here, result in idleness or lack of effectiveness and fruitlessness. Now, I don't know how many years ago it was, and I think this is actually federal, but seems like it was maybe sometime around 2010. That's just a rough guess. Some of you might know this, but um, they came up with this rule and our Christian uh, school organization in the state made us aware of it. And you had to you had to actually post these signs on your property if you had any vehicles coming in there diesel operated vehicles. And it was basically you can't just leave them there idling. I mean, they might have given you 10 minutes or something, but you can't just pull in there. And well, guess what, we had six, seven school buses pulling in there, because in Pennsylvania, the state had to provide transportation. So those school buses would pull in there. And depending on their route, some of them would get there 45 minutes early, especially in the wintertime, guess what, they didn't pull in there and just turn that thing off. Diesel operators don't typically do that. So it, dutifully, we put the signs up. But we, we never went out there and bothered anybody. But it is sort of true. Now, y- those of you who really know all that stuff, know that there's something that's being accomplished. But it's a little bit here like starting your car and not driving it you're just idling. You're getting zero miles to the gallon. You think about it that way. And we're God doesn't want us to be that way, getting zero miles to the gallon in our Christian experience, producing no fruit. And he uses two illustrations. He says, it'll be like being nearsighted. How many of we got nearsighted this morning? i put my hand up. Okay, if I take these off, okay, I know where some of you are, and I know basically what your shapes are, and that's not bad. And what you look like, I could figure it out. But I wouldn't be safe to drive. Nearsighted, and forgetful. Losing sight or losing the thought of the fact that God has called us to something entirely different. He's called us to be well-rounded Christians, becoming more and more like Christ with these seven qualities in our lives. So that's looking at it from the negative standpoint. But I want to have time for a comment on this. Their presence, on the other hand, look at the last of the verses here. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. And I want you to focus for just a moment on the word confirm. It is an adjective here, but if you take the noun form of this, the King James translates, make your calling and election sure. So if you take the word sure or confirmed, if you use that as as an adjective, a verbal adjective, And you you look for the the root of this word. You look for the noun form. What does it mean? It's a warranty deed. In old Greek, it was a warranty deed. Do you know what a warranty deed is? Well, it's what we would would probably think of today as title insurance. In other words, you buy this policy because if you're going to buy this piece of property from this guy, you want to be sure it has a a deed free and clear so you don't get this thing and all of a sudden, someone becomes oh, there's a lien on this. Now you're stuck. So this is, the, this is the greatest level of security that you can get that this is sure, that the title is sure. You know what, if you have these ingredients in your life, he's saying that's the title, deed. that's a guarantee. Those things are a self-witness. Those things confirm in our hearts that our calling and election is real. That God has not only called us effectually by His grace, but that we are a part of His people. And look at the last, the assurance of a hearty welcome in heaven. I love this verse five because it's like a bookend. It's like He used epikoregeto in verse five, and then He uses it again in verse number eleven, and it's like two bookends to kind of relate the thoughts that are in between. So if that word epikoregeto is a is a full a fully supplied put that over into the concept of a welcome which is how does it translate it here uh, in this way there will be richly provided for you an, an entrance okay Isodos in Greek is an entrance but in here it has the idea of a, a reception or a welcome So it's the idea of somebody waiting for you so that when you get there it's like a welcome home it's like I have a, a lot of people in here have probably been I, I've never been to Hawaii but It'd be like, I guess it'd be like getting off the plane and having a bunch of people come out with delays, you know, and put them over your neck. Oh, welcome to Hawaii, Aloha, You know, all this kind of stuff. And I, I always, I smile. I think about the negative illustration of, I took two trips to Colorado and hunting, and I forgot it was the first or second, but I came back from one of them, and I just decided while I was out there, ain't shaving. Sorry, just not gonna shave. Uh, Then I had the idea of, well, you know, I'll have enough of it under my belt till I get back. They say if you're going to grow a beard, nine days to really get, and I was real close. And I decided I'm going to do this. I haven't done this before, I'm going to do it. But I already knew my wife wasn't going to be especially thrilled. So when I got off that airplane in State College, Pennsylvania, and walked through, I didn't get one of those, hi! I'm, this is the truth now, I'm not embellishing. She looked at me and she goes, oh. (laughs) That's kind of the opposite of this, okay? This is like a warm, hearty welcome. This is like, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Folks, I can't think of anything more gratifying than to look forward to the prospect of having each of us lived with commitment lived with dedication, done what we can to grow in grace, providing for these qualities, developing our Christian life so that when we get there, it's like Jesus is there to give us a warm, hearty reception. Gracious Heavenly Father, bless us now as we go into the next service. Bless Pastor Andrew as he opens God's word for us and help us today to have open hearts to your truth. Would you bless us and would you give us those things that we need